Hello, and welcome to Returning to Us, a podcast that gives you strategies and tips for how to hack your brain, build and strengthen relationships, and to teach people how to recognize and neutralize their emotional states. I'll discuss emotional intelligence and regulation, how food and exercise impact the body and brain, and share lessons from my own lived experiences. I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer, the founder of The Behavior Hub, which is an organization that works to reduce the stressors of raising and educating children through a brain and biology-based lens. In these episodes, I'll share stories and strategies from my own life, work, and research, answer listener questions, and wrap it up with a try-it-at-home tip. Decades worth of information in just minutes. You ready? If you have been with me for the last few episodes, then you know that we have been talking about, I would call it ancient parenting. (laughs) It is kind of reflection and takeaways from multiple books I've read on basically ancient and international parenting, parenting outside the US, parenting outside of Western culture. And the few books that I've read through that this information comes from are Hunt Gather Parent, Bringing Up Baby, Ak Jung Parent, The Danish Way, and there's one I'm forgetting. There is no bad weather. So based on German parenting, French parenting, Scandinavian parenting, Danish parenting, and three ancient cultures, Tanzanian, Incan, and Mayan. And there's just some some profound information about how these cultures raise kids and many of the cultures successfully raising kids for for a very long time. So we've talked about quite a few things. You can go back into the previous episodes and listen to them. The last episode or two has been more on like managing emotions and also consequences and punishments. And if you've been here long enough, you probably have heard me say, I'm not a big believer in consequences or punishments, unless they are kind of naturally stated or naturally followed up on consequences or punishments. So many of our punishments in Western world are, they don't educate. And if, if my punishment or consequence doesn't educate the child, how to make a better choice next time, I'm not interested in it. So the beauty of a lot of these things is it does do that. So in last episode, I think it was the first episode where we really dug into consequences and punishments. And we talked about a few things. I'm going to recap those and then jump into this new episode with some additional strategies. One of the things I remember from bringing up baby was this concept of using the word no, how it doesn't work in the United States. And the reason is because the French who use it well, say it with conviction and we do not. And it's true. I don't recall ever hearing like a no, a hard no with conviction or, or very few times. And most times I knew that no had some wiggle room. So naturally, as I became a parent, I struggle with the same thing. I I struggle to use no effectively. And with my seven month old, we typically get a laugh out of him when I say no. So the other alternative is learning the look, the look of no, that works much better for me than the tone of a a no. But for my, my partner, the no works really well because he can say it with a lot of authority. We talked about uh, 
helping kids to understand the consequences of their actions before they take the step and make the action and really kind of provoking thought in them to reflect like, oh, if I do this, let me, someone's slowing me down. What's the result of it? What, what might, or could happen because kids don't think that far ahead. Ask them questions to get their behavior to shift. Like who did insert whatever, who left the insert, whatever, what am I a coat hanger? What am I a, you know, whatever insert fridge, garbage disposal, uh, make kind of funny and humorous. You can also give them some responsibilities, uh, jobs that give them freedom and control and that they can do independently. Take action instead of using words. So um, you can gently guide the child physically. You can change the environment. So the less words you use, the less stimulation that the child receives and therefore they are more likely to respond and, and react. And ignoring them when they make poor choices can work in the right circumstance. Uh, I talked about this in the last episode, but it doesn't work when the child's negatively seeking attention and they don't have the skill set yet to learn to regulate or learn to ask for the attention appropriately. So planned ignoring for birth to six, seven-year-olds is not really an effective strategy because they don't have the skills yet. But a nine, 10-year-old who has the ability to understand the wrong they've done and change their behavior and kind of reflect on their own actions, that could potentially work. But we also need to keep in mind too, is if a child has been exposed to trauma or has attachment needs, that that can be really damaging. So ignoring is a, a tough one to, to use. That takes us to today's topic, which is using stories as a form of consequence or getting them to change behavior responses. So here are a couple examples of how to do this. One, you can turn science into real life. And I, with this one, you almost use a level of humor and, and actually a lot of these concepts of storytelling to shift behavior, embed elements of of humor because they're mostly based on nonfiction stories. And why this works is because humor kind of kicks kids out of their emotional brain and kicks them into their thinking brain. So humor is a great strategy and stories cannot be told in the form of humor. Okay. So how do we get them to do things we want them to do with science? Let's say toothbrushing. So here's a great example. I remember reading about this in one of my, one of the books that when kids don't want to brush your teeth, you can talk about these kind of critters or animals or bugs or whatever they are that live in the mouth and crawl around at night when teeth aren't brushed. And if we leave them in there and we don't brush them out with toothpaste and a toothbrush, then they can put holes in our teeth, which I wouldn't tell it quite that way. I'd add a little bit more lightheartedness to it, but that is true science. If we don't brush our teeth and we don't take care of our teeth, we get cavities and sometimes teeth have to come out. So it's, I think the way Hunt Gather Parent author Micheline describes it is scary with a dash of fun. <laughs> There's another one too. And I remember this because I was researching it. I'm a big believer in gut biome health and kind of measuring your gut biome and determining what your body does and does not respond well to cutting things out of your diet that can drain your energy. And it's, the gut biome is fascinating to me because that's such a direct correlation to your happiness hormone. So, um, in having children and planning for children, the one thing I really wanted to teach them early was about food and the importance of clean, healthy food. And I wanted to introduce the microbiome. I'm like, how on earth do you 
introduce this to a young child. So I started researching children's storybooks and there are actually quite a few really good storybooks that tell the stories and the consequences of your action, the consequence stories, like I said above, of making poor choices with food. (laughs) But you can talk about this and make up your own story and talk about the bugs that live in your stomach, the bacteria and the good bugs and the bad bugs and what all this means and what feeds the good bugs and what feeds the bad bugs and all that stuff. I mean, it's a little scary to think about, but it's true. I mean, that is the reality of how these sciencey things work. So you can take science, break it down and tell it into a story. Or if you're not a good storyteller, sometimes you can find stories that tell it for you. (laughs) All right. One of my favorites and go-tos, and I do this with kids under six, sometimes seven, depends on their maturity level. They love it. Make objects talk, make objects tell a story, make objects come to life. So one example would be, um, <laughs> you know, we would only eat his, his mom would bag his lunch and he was four and only eat the junk food, like the, the dessert or the treat. He would never eat any of their food. So we were working really hard to try and get him to eat something else besides just the dessert. So one day when he was eating just this dessert, I put my head near his belly. I'm like, oh my gosh, did you hear that? And he looked at me and it was kind of funny. I was like, your stomach monster told me he wants some grapes. Because he had grapes that day. And he like kind of got like turned his head, got kind of curious. I'm like, I hear him. He says it again. He said, give me a grape. So he put a grape in his mouth, chewed it. And I was pretending to be the stomach monster and saying like, oh, I love that grape. Give me some more. And he ate the whole pack of grapes. And then wanted to do it for the rest of the food. So very simple, very quick, very easy, and very effective. Another example is I had a kiddo who, <laughs> I think it was the same age group. It was like four or five-year-olds. And they were traveling outside frequently um, throughout the day. I think it was just transitions. And he wouldn't stay with the group. And they kept trying to use a strategy called sticky back, where they tell the students the backs are sticky and they should stick them to the wall. That didn't work for him, at least not very long. So what I did was I made up a story about the sticky back. Like I pretended to smear peanut butter on his back and I put something on the wall that peanut butter sticks really well to. And I um, stuck his peanut butter back to the wall. And and of course, this is a story. I didn't actually put peanut butter on his back, but I pretended to. I made a story up about it. And there was this whole nonfiction elaborate story that I made up and his, he had no problem sticking to the wall and the teachers could continue that story long after I left. So just make things lighthearted. I mean, even with my seven month old, when he's struggling to get his pajamas on or, you know, we're trying to change his diaper and he's rolling over. My go-to isn't to force him to sit still so that I can put those things on, even though they need to go on. My go-to instead is to try to be funny, make funny sounds, make funny faces, do funny things. I mean, it's hard to tell funny stories to him because he doesn't understand the words and what they mean yet, but I can do this on a kind of lighter, looser level for someone that is much younger. The last uh, idea, I think this is shared in Hungather Parent, is monster stories. So when kids are going into the fridge, going into the pantry, going into the garage without permission, you can talk about the monsters that live there and what happens if they go into those places without permission. Uh, So again, scary, but 
read the room, see how they're responding, scary with a dash of fun, make it lighthearted, make it humorous and watch their body cues to make sure you're not making it too scary because we don't want them to have the nightmares about this stuff, but we can tell it in such a way that is effective, but doesn't give them horrific memories of (laughs) their childhood. Uh, Just read their cues. They'll show you very obvious signs of when they're getting a little bit scared. And then you can add a little dash of lightheartedness. All right. So today's episode was all about getting kids to listen by using stories, using humor, making things talk. And that takes us to today's listener question, which is someone shared that she just wants to learn more on how to teach and raise kids. Well, how does she do this? Couple things. One, I don't believe that there's one approach that works for any one family. Like I don't believe that a parenting program or parenting philosophy exists that is a one size fits all. And even with the work at the Behavior Hub, this organization that I built to help coach schools and families around stress, trauma, and behavior in the brain, the program I developed is loosely defined, meaning I read and learned and researched a whole bunch of different programs. And I pulled out what I liked from each program. And I use that and I modify it for each scenario, each group, each person I'm working with. And I think parenting is the same approach. Not everything works for your family that worked for another family. Not everything works for one kid that worked for the other kid. So it's really listening to and learning and cueing into how your kids and your whole family is responding. And I would say just keep, I wouldn't even say up to date because it's not new research, but learn, educate yourself, read about other cultures outside the U.S., read about ancient cultures, take courses, talk to people, most importantly, travel, let kids see other people, talk to people in other countries. The best answers I don't always think are found in courses or in books. They're found by communicating, connecting with people and learning from people who have done it well and done it successfully. So find a mentor or mentors and ask them for advice and know that we're going to screw it up and that's okay. We can apologize and we can just shift and shape and bend a little bit to make it different for the next moment. So we're all doing the best that we can. We're trying to. To wrap up the show, I'm going to share with you the try at home tip, which is consider hiring a virtual assistant. In short, we call them VAs. Why? Because there are small minutiae tasks that we may not have time to do every day that someone could do for us that would make our lives easier. So let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, groceries in our home. Uh, when I go, when I have time, I'll go to the grocery store and I enjoy going to the grocery store. But there are weeks that are just heavy with family stuff, travel, whatever, and I can't make it to the grocery store. So we will use something like an Instacart. So my partner set up a survey that has, it's a Google survey and it has all the foods that we typically order or would need on like a two week basis. So you go in, you fill out the survey, the survey sends the data to our virtual assistant, and then he has access to our Instacart account. He puts all the items in the Instacart account, uses the card on file, and sends the order right to our door without us having to do too much other than fill out a simple survey. Another way I have used it is in teaching. There's a lot of grading, whether it's at the elementary, middle, high, or university level, Sometimes I don't have time when I am teaching multiple 
courses to track everyone's work. So I will hire a VA to go into my online learning systems and use my Excel sheet to track who submitted what. And then I'll go back and respond to it or comment on it, but I at least know who submitted what. That way every week or two weeks, whenever I decide to, I can let the group know, hey, we're missing this from this person or you're missing this. So it saves me a ton of time, even though it's a little task that seems like maybe someone could go through pretty quickly. But if you have five courses and someone can do it for you, it saves you so much time. I've also used VAs for bookkeeping and taxes. I've used VAs to help me manage my email. Uh, you can get really creative in how to use them. So where do you find them? I hire most of my VAs on Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R, -R, I believe it is. You could find one on a company's website called Upwork, or you can just search virtual assistants. Um, other ones that I've hired have come from recommendations or just uh, like virtual assistant platforms that are stateside, a lot of your Fiverr and some of your Upwork people will be outside of the States, which is fine. Um, I've used a lot of people in Jamaica. I've used video editors in Italy. So I've had no problem using people outside the US for things like bookkeeping and managing my email. I have used a couple of people inside the US and I just hired them from different websites. I'm trying to think of the one that I use most frequently. I think it's called Honky Dory virtual assistants. Don't quote me on that. You have to Google it. Hopefully that's at least somewhere close, but there are definitely um, lots of ways to find them. All right. That's it for today's episode of returning to us. Our try at home tip is to hire a virtual assistant, at least try it out. And before I end the range, the pricing range, why this is worth it is some of them work starting at $5 an hour, many of them eight to $10 an hour. And for me, paying someone $5 an hour to check off things that would take me six to eight, 10 hours to do totally worth it. Cause I can use that time to spend with my family or whatever it is that I need to get done. Okay. Back on track. If you're looking for support in the area of stress, trauma, behavior, or the brain, I would love to be a part of that learning journey. The behavior hub, an organization I created offers a range of supports from coaching to online courses to even university credit from the university of Pennsylvania. If you would like to learn more, contact me through the Behavior Hub website or text me at 717-693-7744. And don't forget to lock in what you learned today by trying it out, coming back and letting me know in the comments how it went or sharing with somebody else, each one, teach one. And until next episode, I'm Lauren Spiegelmeyer and thanks for joining me.